0: Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by TennisTours.com, where you can receive a discount off your next purchase of professional tennis event tickets by using the promotional code ESSENTIAL, with a capital E. All right, thank you very much for joining me on today's episode of the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to download the file and to listen to the show. Before we get started with today's topics, I'd like to do a quick shout-out to some very special people that spent a weekend with me this past weekend in Baltimore, Maryland. This was for the 3rd Essential Tennis Clinic, and we spent a full two days working on different parts of their game, their stroke technique on volleys and ground strokes, their tactics in both singles and doubles, their mental toughness, Uh, Everything and had a great time with all of you. So, real quickly, to Steve in North Carolina, Brian and Dana in Nebraska, Michelle in Massachusetts, Sonia and Assam in Florida, Amadou in New York, Debbie in New Jersey, and Charles in Maryland. Had a really great time working with all of you. Only one person from Maryland, everybody else uh, flew or drove in from other states here in the U.S., and that shows great dedication, and all of you guys were great. You worked hard. It was an amazing weekend. If you're interested in working with me over a weekend, the next clinic is going to be in Galveston, Texas, this coming July. I believe it's the 18th, 19th, and 20th, and there's only one spot open for that. So if you'd like to work with me this July in Texas, shoot me an email at ian at and maybe you can grab that last spot for the the texas clinic all right let's get down to business sit back relax and get ready for some great tennis instruction in this segment of the podcast i've got a special guest it is steve from north carolina he posts as steve in the forums at essentialtennis.com and he just completed the third Essential Tennis Clinic in Baltimore, Maryland with me over the weekend. Steve, welcome to the show and uh, good to have you here. You're the first person to ever ever record a segment with me live on the podcast. So good to have you here. Thanks, Ian. Good to be here. So uh, st- the reason why Steve and I are doing a segment together is he's the writer of the fitness blog at EssentialTennis.com. He knows what he's doing when it comes to working out and keeping your body in in peak condition and we've got a good question coming from rami in the philippines i'm going to go ahead and read that and then i'll pretty much hand it over to steve and i'll ask a couple questions here and there but rami wrote to me and said since last week i was watching my son playing in an age group tournament he he is playing in categories 14 and under and 16 and under age boys playing conditions are harsh this summer here in the philippines it gets to be 38 to 40 degrees Celsius, which for those of you in the U.S., that's 103 degrees temperatures above our normal body temperature. I pity the kids. But you'd be able to discuss uh, the tips in handling this situation. Many thanks, Rami, in the Philippines. So yeah, obviously above average temperatures uh, for most of us here in the United States and uh, I would guess for most people, uh, in general, tennis players around the world. Uh, so it definitely kind of uh, gives us a unique uh, challenge, especially for kids, I think. Uh, it seems like you've got to be pretty careful. Um, so, Steve, what 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 are some tips from you on on how to handle this kind of heat and, and be safe out there while competing on the tennis court?
1: Yeah, yeah and, and uh, thanks, Rami, for the great question. Um, you, you bring up uh, an important point. It is really difficult to play in those conditions. Um, the first thing... Uh, and main thing that you want to be aware of is, is uh, the hydration factor. You can get um, really dehydrated quickly. I know it's very humid in the Philippines. I've got a couple friends that are from there. Um, so you want to be aware of a couple things. The first is going to be proper pre You want to uh, – and, and this begins n- not the day of but the day before – and a couple days leading up to as well, you want to make sure that um, you, you are drinking as much water as you are comfortable and have the kids drink as much water as is comfortable for them to drink. Um, an 8-ounce glass of water every hour is probably adequate. Uh, the body is able to eliminate uh, eliminate up to 32 ounces of water uh, per hour. And so this is not, um, it seem, may seem like a lot of liquid to be intaking, but it's really not. Um, you want to make sure that they're getting a good diet in, you know, some lighter foods as well. Um, you want to have them avoid caffeine, any kind of sodas or coffee, because caffeine can act as a diuretic. It causes the kidneys to um, increase urine production, which is going to obviously eliminate a, wa- a lot of water from the body. Um, and again, just hitting on the hydration issue the day of, you want to make sure they get up and um, drink plenty of water um, and make sure that they're drinking water continuously throughout the day. And and especially as they begin to uh, work out and exert themselves um, at least every 10 to 15 minutes. um, If, if uh, give them a break uh, and let them get a, you know, two to three ounces or or as much as they want to take, not too much, but um, you know, definitely not more than, you know, eight to 10 ounces of water at a shot, but uh, give them frequent breaks. uh, And for any play lasting um, over an hour, you would want to add in an electrolyte beverage because at this point your body is really going to start getting depleted of sodium. Um, and a sodium, uh, a proper sodium balance in your body is is, uh, is crucial for uh, ensuring proper hydration. Um, a large amount of sodium is lost through sweat and you want to make sure that you're putting back in some of those elements such as potassium, sodium, and a small amount of carbohydrate in order to keep the body going. Um, these human conditions um, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that when it's very humid, uh, that acts against the body's natural cooling mechanism, uh, your body cools off by producing water in the form of sweat. And when that water evaporates, it, uh, it cools the body. It's, it's kind of like a, a car's radiator. You get uh, cool, uh, cool air running through the water and it cools off the body. Well, when you're playing in very humid conditions, the sweat tends to not evaporate and it will kind of uh, negate the body's natural cooling effect. So, you you know, there's a couple things you want to be aware of. Um, you want to stay covered up as this will create a barrier between you and the heat and the sun. Um, and you want to be aware of, uh, factors such as cramping and heat exhaustion. This, these are really, um, uh, uh, symptoms that can be exacerbated by extreme heat and high temperatures. Um, you want to, uh, Uh, obviously ensure that they're taking in the proper amount of fluid, but uh, cramping and heat exhaustion can become issues even if they are uh, maintaining proper hydration. Um, Some symptoms of uh, heat exhaustion are going to be paleness, nausea. You could have fatigue, dizziness, lightheadedness, even vomiting, fainting. Um, cool clammy skin if you get to those kind of conditions you definitely want to stop uh, activity immediately get them into the uh, into cool air if possible drinking moderate amounts of fluids and just let them cool down so uh
0: steven extreme situ uh, extreme cl- uh climates or, or situations like this with the the temperatures so high is, is it possible to still get those kind of symptoms even when properly hydrated or is the the dizziness you know fainting, cold, you know, clammy skin, is that possible even with uh, proper hydration?
1: It can be, just depending on the athlete's conditioning, um, body type, background, depending on how much work they've been doing, depending on, you know, what they may, uh, may not have eaten, you know, if they're properly um, fueled with nutrition and food. Um, you know, sometimes you're, you're more susceptible to those things just, um, you know, if you didn't get enough sleep, uh, many, many factors can contribute to it. So yes, Ian, you can, uh, even if you are having proper hydration, you can, uh, you can have some of those things happen. So.
0: All right. Uh, so what else besides the, uh, the hydration and you mentioned, uh, the electrolyte beverages, trying to get some sodium, um, uh, by the way what's um I know that obviously Gatorade Powerade and and all of those popular sports type drinks I know that the sodium uh, part of
1: those beverages is key how come the the sodium is so important to our bodies Well the sodium is what um enables the uh the muscles and it really acts as a, a stabilizing agent I mean it stabilizes your your blood pH level and it makes the really makes your 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 the water in your in your body and your blood able to transport the nutrient nutrients properly. And it's just it's just a good a good balance to have in your body. To have once you once you start losing sodium, your your body uh, will start breaking down tissues, and and it just um, enables your body to have a proper water balance. Okay, so besides the the hydration in general and the the
0: uh, sodium intake, what else is important for these kids playing out there in these hot conditions?
1: Well, it's important to take breaks and cool off. Um, you know, the best athletes in the world, uh, I know Roger Federer often trains in Dubai and, you know, temperatures that are real similar in the mid 40s centigrade, which is about 110, 111 degrees, I believe. Um, it, and still, it's important to take breaks. You know, you, you, can, you can go and go for a while, and even if you're taking in proper amount of fluids and staying cool, trying to stay cool, covered up, et cetera, et cetera, it's important to take breaks. You know, 30, 45 minutes of hard, exertive activity, you need to take a break and have time to cool down, and that's really going to just cool down the machine. You know, you can't just run at the red line for full speed for an hour straight and uh, expect the body to keep going. you got to have some proper recovery time. Also, um, just going out and training in those conditions continually is going to help you create more endurance. The, the more that you place your, yourself and your body in those, uh, in those tough, hard conditions, the more your body's going to get used to it. Um, you're, you're going to start to adapt to it after a while. If you're being challenging in there, challenged in those conditions, rather, um, some other things that could help are, are just some off court training, some, some good cardiovascular training that's going to get the heart pumping, whether it be, riding a a stationary bike or riding a bike or running or running on an elliptical machine or or things like that. Uh, You know, some general cardiovascular training to uh, increase the heart's capacity to to work when it's hot is going to be also very important and and often an underrated or an often underused thing as a tennis player. Um, You know, most people think of uh, getting most of their exercise in on the tennis court and that's adequate when really the top athletes in the world are doing lots and lots of off-court training. So the combination of hydration, uh, the conditioning, and just the frequent breaks, I think are going to be some things that could really help your guys out, Rami. Um, Steve, I'm curious. Even at an age 14
0: or 16-year-old boy, is that still – recommended, I guess, to do a, a lot of off-court training. Um, I, I guess my question is, at what age should kids start to actually work out or, or do physical
1: training off the court? Sure. And I think mo- by, by the age of 14 or 16, most boys have probably reached their, um, their peak height. Their bones have stopped growing. Um, they've reached most for the most part, the size that they're going to be as adults. And so strength training is okay in moderation. Of course, we're not going to put them out there and and have them doing 800 pound squats and bench presses and trying to really develop full loads of muscle. Those things are, are, um, aren't necessary to, to playing optimal tennis. Anyway, you want to do some degree of strength training, um, you know, a a middle, uh, uh, medium program of, of moderate weight and higher reps, because that's going to condition the muscles Um, and also, yeah, it's very appropriate that they, that they, um, begin doing a lot of cardiovascular work as well. Uh, tennis is mainly running. And if you don't have the, uh, not only the foot speed, but the cardiovascular endurance to, uh, get out there and stay out there in the court and stay running, then you're going to wear out sooner and you're not going to be as effective as you, uh, go into a match later.
0: All right. Well, Steve, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, Do you have anything else to add before we wrap up this topic?
1: No, that's pretty much it. Again, just um, I think proper hydration is the main key we want to talk about, uh, and that's just for anything you do outside when it's hot and humid. We want to make sure that you're drinking plenty of water, uh, plenty of fluids in your body, and just keep an eye on, uh, on the heat level.
0: All right. Well, uh, it's been great having you here this weekend. Thanks very much for your time and recording this topic, and hopefully I'll see you again in the, in the near future for another clinic. Thanks, Ian.
1: I enjoyed it, and uh, we had a great time in Baltimore. I got a lot out of it, and uh, appreciate you hosting us.
0: All right. Before we get going with our next question on this episode of the podcast, I want to remind you guys briefly about my sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast, and that is Championship Tennis Tours. You can find them at tennistours.com. And they've been putting together individual tickets to professional tennis events, both WTA and ATP Tours, and ticket packages, including accommodations and hotel, to a a wide variety of professional events all over the world. And that includes all four of the Grand Slams and a lot of the Masters 1000 Series tournaments. So if you're going to be traveling or going to a tournament in your hometown in the near future... Definitely check them out. And if you use the promotional code ESSENTIAL with a capital E, when you check out, you'll receive a discount off your purchase of professional tennis event tickets or travel packages for the next event that you go to. Please uh, show them your support for having them be the official sponsor of the podcast, and I really appreciate their support. Definitely uh, make sure that you check out the U.S. Open packages as well, some really awesome packages, and when you purchase a U.S. Open package and use the promotional code ESSENTIAL, you'll also get an invitation to a cocktail party in Times Square, which I'm going to be a part of live. Uh, So definitely... Check that out. Should be a good time. And uh, I'm looking forward to heading up to New York this year and possibly hooking up with a couple of you guys and and having a uh, a cool event in Times Square during the tournament. So, TennisTours.com. And again, the promotional code is ESSENTIAL when you check out. I thank them very much for their support of the Essential Tennis Podcast. All right, let's get going with our next topics. And they're going to come to us from Mark in the Netherlands. Thank you very much for writing, Mark, and he's got a couple of different questions having to do with changing your grip that I'd like to discuss. His first question, he's got three questions, and I'm hopefully going to have enough time to get to all of them, but here's his first one. He said his question is all about the adjustment of the grip, and he has a few questions related to it. The first one is that somebody gave me a pointer that instead of changing my grip, I could also rotate my wrist a little. You would call it pronating, I think, because the rotation is not done by the wrist itself, but I think you know what I mean. Both adjusting the grip slightly and turning the wrist a little are done to prevent the ball from going long. My question is, what are the advantages of changing your grip as compared to rotating your wrist? By the way, I normally hit a forehand and backhand with an eastern grip. For these slow, short balls, I now change towards a semi-western grip, maybe somewhere in between both grips. All right. so uh, what he's basically saying is that for a short shot in the court, he's moving forwards and using a different grip than what he would for a shot a little bit farther back and closer to the baseline. First of all, Mark, I want to say that it's smart to want to change your racket face for a shorter ball. You're on the right track there as far as your technique is concerned. The closer you get to the net, the less room you have to hit the ball into, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, The the closer inside your own side of the court uh, you get, the, the less amount of room you have to land your shot back in on the other half of the court, and very often when players miss a short ball deep when they're trying to attack, they make a technique change in their swing length. Meaning that uh, typically they, they get tentative on the next shot, they shorten their swing up because they remember they missed the last one by hitting it too far, and the result is an increasingly short and tentative kind of scared ground stroke swing. And I don't like that. When you guys watch the pros on on TV, you will not see them let up on a shorter shot. If anything, they they will actually accelerate more at the ball. I'm talking about one that um, is relatively easy. They're moving inside the baseline. It's a shorter shot, sitting up somewhere in their strike zone or maybe a a little bit higher uh, around shoulder height. Um, but not even necessarily shoulder height. Something that you can get to and hit comfortably is what I'm talking about. And when you watch the, the players on TV, they don't swing shorter at those shots. And yet they're still able to hit them in play. And a big mistake that recreational players make is they miss that short shot. They're, they're trying to pressure their opponent with it, which they should be doing because it's easy. You're close to your opponent. It's an easy shot. Uh, it's in your strike zone, and you should be trying to pressure them with that shot. And very often recreational players miss this shot long, and they say to themselves, ah, oh, that was too much. I hit it too hard. I was too aggressive. And that's not the way that I want you guys to think about it. Because when you think that way, you become more and more scared of hitting the ball and you're not going to advance in your tennis game that way. Instead, you should make a full follow through at these types of shots and the change you should make to keep the ball in play is to close your racket face more, meaning that your strings are now facing a little bit more towards the court than they were from back behind the baseline. But you should make the same follow-through, the same swing that you would from a shot at the baseline uh, as as you do on a shorter shot that you're moving well inside the baseline on. Make sure to continue swinging upwards also so that you create some topspin to curve the ball back into play. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, You should be making an upward swing to make that that spin, which is going to curve the ball back into the court. And that's not going to happen if you shorten up your swing. And so the result here is a full, confident swing on any shot that many uh, recreational players are nervous about. And so before I really answer your question, Mark, I I just wanted to... I congratulate you on having the right idea there. I, I'm glad that you're, you are thinking about simply closing the racket face a little more to keep the ball from going too far, and you're not being scared and nervous about missing it long. Uh, it sounds like you're continuing to follow through. I, I, I just wanted to put that out there because some listeners might not have heard me talk about this before, and it's a really important concept to understand. So yes, you're correct. Closing the racket face um, is important. Now, Um, Let's talk specifically about changing the grip versus uh, just turning your your hand or your palm downwards to close the face. Closing the racket face does not involve turning your wrist, first of all. That's important to understand. Uh, You're correct in pointing that out. It's pronation, uh, as you said in your question. And pronation is specifically the rotation of your forearm meaning uh, your, your arm right below your elbow, your forearm, is what actually pronates and that turns your palm down towards the court surface. It's not your wrist. Go, go ahead and, and grip a tennis racket right out in front of you, put it out in front of you like you're making contact uh, with a ball, and then move your wrist back and forth. And the racket will move back and forth, <laughs> it, it won't twist up and down. Uh, that motion is accomplished with your forearms, yes you're correct, and that's what closes the racket face. Now to to get to answering your your question specifically, no, I don't recommend changing your grip for a short ball and then changing it back again for a deep ball. This is much more complicated than simply closing the racket face with your forearm by pronating. When you change your grip, uh, many more things change than just the angle of your strings. And Mark points this out in, in a question that's going to come up in a second here. Uh, But when you change your grip, it's more than just the racket face that changes. You now need to actually use uh, essentially a different swing because you're going to have a little bit different contact points. Uh, It's going to be a different feeling swing because the mechanics all change uh, when you change your grip. It It becomes essentially a different stroke. Now, the main elements of hitting a good ground stroke are still the same, but Changing your grip is a big change, and it it causes you to have to change many other things at the same time. It's not just the racket face. That's going to be my main point here. So what you should do instead is learn how to feel, learn how to have an awareness of where your strains are, and you need to learn how to make adjustments accordingly based on the type of shot that you're trying to hit during a point. Uh, In other words, a deep rally shot in a really short uh, kind of put-away ground stroke uh, we're looking for a very different result. On On that deep ground stroke, we're trying to really get the ball up into the air, keep the ball deep back to your opponents again, and so you have a a really long distance to make the ball travel. On that short ground stroke where you're trying to pressure your opponents, you're trying to do something very different. You're trying to attack, and we're not trying to get the ball up into the air and get it to travel nearly as far. It's, It's much shorter. And you need to learn how to change your racket face between those two different types of shots and everything in between while using the same grip. You need to learn how to achieve those different range of shots using one grip. And you're going to accomplish that by making small adjustments in the racket face, the angle of the strings when you make contact. And and a, a small change makes a big difference. So. In my opinion, changing the grip is not necessary. It's just going to overcomplicate things. I would much more recommend that you find the grip that's most comfortable for you in general, whether it be a eastern forehand grip, semi-western forehand grip, or an eastern backhand grip, um, whatever feels most comfort- comfortable for you in general. Stick with that and then practice uh, creating different types of results using that same grip. Now, let's go ahead and move to to Mark's second question. My second question is about attacking these slow short balls with your backhand. I found that that, um, hitting a backhand with a semi-western grip is much more difficult. What would be a reason to stick, uh, I'm sorry, would that be a reason to stick to an eastern backhand grip and pronate instead? I discovered the same semi-western grip also helps me for deep high topspin shots, so very different shots from the short uh, slow ones. You don't hear a lot about players that change their forehand grips during a game. Would you recommend that in general, or would it be confusing because the swing and contact spot would also change? I'm looking forward to your answer, especially because advice on the swing bet- uh, between different forehand grips seems quite rare. All right, We've well, got a couple different questions in, in here. Um, you're talking about a backhand grip with a semi-western grip, which I assume your meaning uh, is... Uh, um, Another turn past an eastern backhand grip where your knuckles are up on top of the grip, yeah, that's really far over. We're, we're getting into almost a grip that uh, Justine uh, Henin uh, uses on her one-handed backhand, and that's a really extreme grip. Um, I wouldn't recommend that you go over that far. And you say that it's kind of an awkward grip to use. I agree. Um, you shouldn't have to turn it that far in order to keep your racket face closed. And you say, should I stick to an eastern backhand grip and pronate instead? Yes, although on a backhand it's supinating, not pronating. Uh, You're going to want to turn the racket the opposite direction that you do on a forehand. On a forehand you pronate, and on a backhand your dominant hand will will supinate to keep that racket face closed. Now you talk uh, also about uh, the forehand here, uh, talking about it, it becoming confusing because the swing and contact point would change. Yes, and I'm on the same page with you there, and I I completely agree. That's what I was talking about before. Uh, I don't recommend that you try to learn several different forehand and backhand swings for different types of grips. Uh, Instead, find a grip that feels most comfortable to you in general on both sides, and then learn how to use it to achieve different results, as I described before. All right, and Mark's third question here, last one, having to do with changing grips. And this has to do with the backhand slice. So we're kind of going through every type of shot here from the baseline. Um, he wrote to me, this was a separate time, and said, I have a follow-up question on my, my earlier question about switching uh, between different grips for different kinds of shots. Normally, I use an eastern grip with both my forehand and backhand, which is one-handed. One shot where it is often recommended to change your grip is when you play a slice. You often hear that you should use the continental grip for the backhand and forehand slice. However, personally, I wonder if it's really a good idea to use the continental grip when you play the slice. I find that when I use that grip, the racket face is facing too much upward with with the consequence being that I only brush the bottom of the ball and it goes up very high. This makes it an easier target for my opponent. The ball goes way up too high and spends too t- too long a time in the air. But is it possible that there is something is it possible that there is something else that i'm doing wrong? Would you say that the eastern backhand grip And for eastern forehand grips are also fine for slice shots, maybe slightly better. All right, so let's talk about the forehand and backhand slice and which grip to use. Um, If your slice is popping up too much, you identified the problem, Mark. It means that your face is too open. Exactly as you said, your strings are facing upwards too much as you're making contact. Could also mean that you're you're chopping down at the ball too much. Uh, but ultimately, it means your your face is too open, and so the ball is popping up into the air. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that the grip you're using is wrong, but rather it just means that you're not controlling your racket face correctly. Now, traditionally, traditionally, most players do use a continental grip to hit their slice on both the forehand and backhand side, as you pointed out. Um, this includes myself. That's how I was taught when I was younger. And for, for volleys and drop shots and slice shots, basically anything with backspin, on both my forehand and backhand side, I use a continental grip uh, for both sides. And it's definitely very natural for me. And as I said a second ago, traditionally it's what most top-level players, including professionals, use. Recently I've started noticing that pros are, are using other grips to hit their, their backhand slice. Uh, specifically, I've noticed that Nadal and Murray both use a different grip from a, uh, a continental grip. Now, you, you talked about on your backhand slice using an eastern backhand grip to try to close the face a little more. Well, guess what? Both Nadal and Murray use an Eastern forehand grip to hit their backhand slice. This means that it opens the racket face up even more than what would naturally occur with a continental grip. And neither of them have any problem uh, keeping the racket face closed enough to keep the ball from popping up on their backhand slice. And you're talking about going uh, two grips farther over than that to keep it closed and using an eastern backhand grip on your backhand side. So uh, this tells me that you're obviously doing something incorrect technique-wise on your backhand slice to to, to have to use as far over as an eastern backhand grip just to keep the racket face closed enough to keep the ball from popping way up in the air. Um, And so, in my opinion, you should really be keeping at least a continental grip for that backhand slice, and you need to get some more feel for where your racket strains are and start to close the racket face by hand, uh, no pun intended, by supinating a little bit on that backhand side to close the racket face uh, more than what you're doing now. I'm not aware of any players who use an eastern backhand grip for their backhand slice or an eastern forehand grip for their forehand slice. Um, those are definitely uh, grips that are naturally set up to hit with topspin because they close the racket face so much. And I, I highly recommend that you stick with that continental grip and start learning how to close the racket face a little bit more to keep that ball from popping up so much and floating and, and making an easy shot for your your opponents. So stick with it, Mark, and thank you very much for the great questions. Um, so in, re- in review here, uh, going over your questions, um, I don't recommend that for topspin shots on your, your forehand and backhand that you use different grips. Uh, I would highly recommend you stick with one grip and learn how to get different results. However, when you do want to hit a slice, I do recommend that you change your grip on both sides and go to a, a continental grip. It doesn't have to be continental um use what's comfortable for you but i don't think you should have to go to an eastern backhand grip for a backhand slice or an eastern forehand grip for a forehand slice continental should be more than closed enough for you to be able to hit a nice deep uh, penetrating slice that stays relatively low to the net and doesn't pop up too much so mark thanks very much for your questions Uh, i really appreciate you being a listener over in the Netherlands great to have a listener there and hopefully my descriptions here were helpful to you all right that does it for episode number 120 of the essential tennis podcast thank you very much for joining me today I appreciate it Make sure to check out the Essential Tennis podcast on iTunes in the music store, where you guys can subscribe for free and get the new show every week automatically downloaded to your computer, and you can transfer it right to your iPod, or iPhone or iTouch, or uh, iPad <laughs> uh, from, uh, from iTunes, uh, which is pretty cool. Automatically get those downloaded. I'm going to be uh, signing off here and then going to watch the US, uh, not the U.S. Open, the French Open which I've uh, enjoyed watching so far. I'm really looking forward to the second week. And by the way, myself and Will Hamilton over at FuzzyOlaBalls.com are going to be doing another live webcast during the French Open final this coming Sunday uh, during the final. Hopefully it's going to be a Federer and Nadal final, which would be awesome. Uh, But it's going to be this coming Sunday. And I think we're going to start at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time here on the east coast of the United States. Uh, which makes it very early for my friends over on the the West Coast. Uh, But hopefully you guys get up to watch it live, and you can check out the live video stream of myself and Will doing match commentary and uh, chat room at the front page of EssentialTennis.com or at FuzzyYellowBalls.com also. All right, that does it for this week's show. Thank you very much, guys, for tuning in. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.